today's podcast, we focus on coaching Generation Z. Honor the relationships. It's the title of a book by our guest today, Brian Polian, the special teams coordinator at Notre Dame. Coach, it's great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the, the uh, opportunity to be with you. And I want to thank you for, number one, taking the time to, to do not one but two sessions at Lawrence First and Goal. Uh, you knocked it out of the park with both of those, and it was uh, such an incredible cause. And we're really excited to have you as a part of that. Well, uh, that was uh, what a great cause, and uh, I really didn't know much about it and, until I was asked. And, and when I did a little bit of research, uh, not only was I excited to do it, I was honored to do it. And, and you know, hopefully the camp can get back up online, and we'll, we'll you know, we'll be able to take back off. And. You know, what we're going to talk about today, as I mentioned, is uh, the topic of uh, a book that you just published uh, available on Amazon and on uh, Coach's Choice. And that was the, the you know, the, I think your second topic. You did focus on special teams and had some great stuff there, too. And we'll have to get you on another time and talk about special teams. But I think this one is is so important to everybody out there who coaches. And uh, we're going to dig into that. Before we do it, though, since this is a First time for you being on the podcast. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching. And I, I know you grew up, obviously, in a football family uh, with everything that your father was doing. But, you know, for you, what was it that made you want to become a football coach? Well, it, it's I appreciate you mentioning my dad. My, my dad, Bill Polian, is, is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And a Super Bowl champion and, and an NFL executive for over 30 years. But what a lot of people don't know is that my father started as a high school history teacher and a football and baseball coach. Um, and, and my dad's passion was, was working with young people and, and being a teacher and a coach. And, and he passed that down to me. He ended up in personnel almost by accident. And obviously his journey has been an incredible one and offered me great opportunities and, and experiences as a young person. But, um, you know, I think sometimes I believe I'm living out his dream right now by, by coaching at Notre Dame. Um, my passion for the profession began as a high schooler. Um, and I would work in the uh, Bills training camps in Fredonia, New York, and, and worked as an equipment guy, a ball boy, essentially. And, and, but I watched Marv Levy up close and personal. And I watched the way that he interacted with those teams, Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith, Cornelius Bennett, Steve Tasker, um, Pete Metzelars. I mean, those, those are the guys that I grew up around and I watched Marv and the way that he uh, led that team and, and the way that he saw them through such adversity and, um, the way they reacted to him and uh, other coaches like Elijah Pitts and Don Lawrence and Walt Corey. And there were so many great coaches on that staff, Bruce DeHaven. And I, I really, at the age of 16, said, that's what I want to do. Um, ultimately, I, I have not gone into professional football because I have found uh, the relationships that we build with college kids and the impact that we can have on their lives has been for me to this point in my career, the most rewarding. That's not to say that at some point I won't try pro football, but 
to this point, 24 years in, I've really enjoyed the college experience and, and um, have just, it, it's been um, my life's work. And I don't know if I'm simple or lucky uh, or a combination of both, but from the age of 16, I knew what I wanted to do. And I have followed that path ever since. And, and it's been incredible. Yeah. Not many guys come on here and say it was, you know, at 16 where they decided that, you know, some of them will say, you know, sometime in, in college. Um, but uh, the, the focus from there, you know, as, as you got into college, and I know you went to uh, John Carroll University here in, in the Cleveland area. And I, I had told you, you know, when we were talking prior to Lawrence first and goal that we had crossed paths at some point when we were much younger, but um, you know, <laughs> uh that you know carrying that through there's a lot of, of things that are are distractions especially as you get into college and there's you know you can look at all kinds of different things for you what was it that i guess kept you on that track and in i guess maybe some of those lessons along the way that solidify that yeah this is the path for me well it was um the reward of the relationships with the student athletes knowing that you could still have an effect I think often if you get a, for lack of a better term, knucklehead, if you're dealing with a knucklehead in pro football, they're often going to stay knuckleheads. Um, uh, in my experience, a bad guy doesn't become a good guy when you give him $20 million. It usually gets worse. Whereas I think in, in, in college football, my experience is that you see guys come from different backgrounds. You guys have different challenges. But I also think in college age, they're more open to help. They're more open to um, to seeking advice and counsel. And, and, and you can literally help change lives. And, the, and, and for that matter, at a place like Notre Dame, to recruit somebody to Notre Dame and help them graduate from here, there are guys that, that come here that there are the first ones in their families to go to college and then graduate from Notre Dame, not only does it change their lives, the lives of their children. And to be a small part of that is just so incredibly rewarding. Now, I'm like everybody else. I mean, I was chasing early in my career, you know, how do I get to the power five? How do I make more money? How do I get people to know who I am and recognize what I'm doing? But through all of that and through all of those um flawed views of what the profession is really about. It was always the relationships that brought me back to why, oh yeah, this is why we do what we do. And, um, you know, that, that only gets more solidified, uh, the longer I go in my career. You know, something that's come up in a, a lot here in the last several weeks is I, I've been able to get involved in a great cause like Lauren's and, and we all sat back and realized, you know, when we finished that thing, John Luce and Marianne and some of the other people and a lot of coaches who even were a part of it and, and, and had talked to me about this is that of all the challenges we've had here in the last year in the shutdown, that there's been a lot of things that good that came out of it that probably, you know, nobody would have slowed down for nobody would have looked at things differently. You know, we've been forced to do that. And so there's been a lot of positive that came out of it. And that, 
you know, the beginning of, of your talk, you kind of shared as for you, it led to uh, a time where you could write this book. Yes, it actually led to some self-reflection first. Um, for, for the people listening to us that don't know, I was the head coach at the University of Nevada, Reno for four years. Um, went to two bowl games in four years, and, but, but ultimately the university decided to make a change. And, and that, that's hard. That's hard for anybody to hear, hey, you know, we want to go in another direction. But it took some time to get over the emotional hurt of that. And then the, the opportunity that the pandemic and being sequestered in our homes essentially provided was a chance to, to take some, some self-reflection and, and self-stock and say, okay, here I am at this point in my career. What am I proud of? What am I not proud of? Where did I make mistakes? What do I need to do better? And that led to conversations about, you know what, I need to do a better job of, of building bridges and connections and building uh, more meaningful relationships with the players that I coach. And as I explored that, both from my own point of view and experience, and then researching and talking to other people, it really became, you know what, it, it started as this is going to be a clinic talk that I believe in. Like if I get the opportunity to talk to other coaches, and no matter what the level, I want to make a point of spending some time on this because it's important. And then as I built the, the clinic presentation, I really discovered, you know what, this is the outline of a book. And my dad, Bill, and my, my beautiful wife, Laura, both said to me, hey, listen, you're used to going 1,000 miles an hour for 24 straight years. You, you know, you'd be going spring recruiting and spring football right now and all these things. You're never going to have this time, this opportunity again. Why don't you take on this challenge and try and write the book? And I did. And um, it, it went through some variations, obviously. Um, every person, every real writer will tell you, and I'm not a real writer, that you know, anybody says, boy, I really enjoy writing, they're lying to you. Uh, what we enjoy saying is, I've written something, but the process itself is difficult. Um, but there was an opportunity here to do this. I felt like it was important, and I felt like it could help especially young coaches. Uh, so we went through with it and, and found a partner at Coach's Choice uh, and Jim Peterson, who my publisher, who said, not only do I want to do this with you? I think it's important. And, and we were able to produce the book and it's something that I'm very proud of, but I also believe is, is worth, is worth, um, you know, the time for, for people who work with Gen Z. You know, one of the things you started your talk off with was just a, a short quote that um, I think encapsulates a lot of this, that it's, you have to honor the relationship before you can honor the task. What does that quote mean to you, and how did that frame out this this whole work for you? Well, it was incredible. I, Coach Kelly and I were sitting in uh, the headmaster's office, Alex Zakiria, at uh, an all-boys school, uh, I believe St. Joseph's in, in Worcester, Mass. And Coach Kelly said to him, hey, you're in charge of a school that has 1,000 boys that grades 9 through 12. What can you tell us through your years of experience that will help us in what we do? And And – 
the, the quote was tremendous. It was, hey, the one thing I've learned here is that you have to honor the relationship before you can honor the task. And a light bulb went off for me. It like encapsulated everything that I had been feeling and think about in, in one sentence. And it kind of became the jumping off point for all these things that I wanted to explore. And it is true. And, and look, it's not, I don't think it's a new concept either. I mean, my dad and his generation was always talking about um, they, you know, players have to know you care before they care about how much, you know, which is essentially saying the same thing, but that, with Generation Z, with the, this group we're working with right now, if we don't try to find common ground, if we don't reach out to them and build those relationships, we cannot effectively teach them. And in the end, no matter what your motivation for coaching, if you, even if you say, I'm not a, a warm and fuzzy guy and that's not important to me, well, if you're pragmatic and you want success, then this has to be relation. You have to work on relationships because in the end, that's just going to help your players learn and, and uh, perform better. And, and that's what, you know, that's what we're trying to get them to. We're trying to help them be the best versions of themselves. And I know as you talked about how this was all, uh, I guess, compiled, this, this wasn't just Brian Polian's ideas there was research that went into this too, that, uh, you know, there, you studied a lot of different things. You looked at different books, different studies. Um, how much time did it take you on the, the research as you were working on putting this together? Oh, in, in fits and starts, it, it took a couple of weeks just in terms of getting into the academic side of it, you know, making sure that, that if I was using a quote that, that I was citing it from the right study uh, you know, using using statistical information uh, to make sure that that I was um, to make sure that 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 I was citing the the right studies, all those things. And then, uh, frankly, there was a lot of conversations with with other coaches, and 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 really, I, I think in one of the most um, important parts of the book where we talk about um, building bridges and the dynamics of diversity and inclusion. I'm a 46-year-old white man trying to find common ground with often 17- and 18-year-old African-American males, at least in football. And to ignore those dynamics would have been silly, but then for me, I, I can't speak firsthand about what it's like to be an African-American student-athlete on a college campus. So I took the time to talk to current student-athletes, student-athletes we had recruited, African-American coaches. Um, shoot, I, I mean, I had I asked Tony Dungy to proofread that chapter for me. So, um, and, and, and trust me, I'm not saying I got everything right, but I, I did want to make sure that the – information that we were sharing was accurate and and spoke to real life experiences from people that had rel had uh, relevant point of views yeah and it's it is something that you, know, you think back to uh you know june and july i was having some of those same conversations with with coaches um you know diverse racial backgrounds on the podcast i know i had a phd on from 
uh, Denver and you know just talking about the dynamics of diversity and inclusion and you know obviously came to the forefront of everybody's mind and really thinking about how you know we've been affected one way or, or the other in the past um, for you how did how did you I guess frame that out right that idea that um, we can't ignore navigating through race within the dynamics of the relationships that we have with our student athletes? Well, the first thing was I, you know, I was actually discouraged by some people around me. Don't, don't step into this. Like race is the third rail. And if you screw this up, it can hurt your career. But to write a book on relationships in coaching uh, and ignore that would be disingenuous. The reality of it is, an entire book could be written about that topic and probably is, and I'm just ignorant to it. Um, but I also understood that, hey, there have been points in my career where I just haven't done a very good job of understanding somebody else's perspective. There are times that I did not choose my words wisely and didn't understand the effect of them. And I just felt like if I was going to do this, um, I had to be real about it and, and had to try. And I'm again, I'm not telling you I got it perfectly right, but what I did do was lean on the experiences of others and say, okay, tell me where coaches can do better. Tell me where we, we, we don't reach an understanding. And I'll give you a great example. I had one young man tell me, coach, when I hear somebody say, I don't see color, he said, I think it's a total cop-out. It is so, it's fake. It's disingenuous. When I hear that, I hear somebody saying, this is a sensitive topic and I'm not comfortable with it. He said, the reality of it is, if we're going to recognize people as individuals, and by recognizing people as individuals, what makes them unique, we are, we are valuing them. We are saying, I I see what makes you different. To ignore race in that is to ignore what makes somebody unique, what makes them an individual. It's like ignoring gender or ignoring ethnicity or any other distinguishing factor about somebody's upbringing and their life experience. To say I don't recognize that is to not recognize them completely as an individual. And I never thought about that. And, and, um, you know, to say to a person, talk to me, what, tell me about your life experience and what's different for you. That helps me understand that person. And in the end, when I'm working with a young person, the better, under, the best understanding I can reach, uh, the, the, the better the relationship, and the, the more ability I have to try and find common ground. I know you offer some advice in those regards and in what we can do as coaches, um, what are some tips you have for, for coaches in being able to, again, um, you know, navigate that in, in the relationships you, you develop with your student athletes? Well, I mean, the first thing is we have to be interested in their lives. I think a lot of coaches mistake sharing what's going on in their own lives as building relationships. A relationship is a two-way street. So just by sitting down with a young person and saying, hey, listen about what my wife's doing. Let me tell you about my kids. That's not a two-way street. And, and so saying, hey, tell me about where you're from. Tell me about 
your upbringing? Who's most influential in your life? Um, and, and just simply being an intentional listener and being invested in the details of our student athletes' lives. That's first. And then trying to understand, um, you know, I, I, had, I had one young man I recruited at the University of Nevada say, Coach, I was never used to being around white men in my life. I mean, I didn't have, you know, any white men in my neighborhood that, that were involved in my life, you know. So even that dynamic took some time to adjust. I would have never thought about that. So I, I think just listening and understanding where guys are from and what their challenges and what, you know, the things that they've excelled at, you know, what has their journey been like before they get to you and you guys begin building relationship? Then how can we help through transition? I mean, when a young person leaves home and goes to college or a young person leaves middle school or junior high and enters high school, that transition is different for everybody. And I think we often assume that it should be seamless. I used to think, hey, you know, I'm bringing these kids to this beautiful campus. This, this should be easy, man. Life is great here. Well, we have no understanding that sometimes bringing a kid 2,000 miles away from home onto a college campus is like bringing them to a foreign um, a foreign country. I mean, we have to provide support through those transitions, even to the point it's like, okay, if you have a if you have a confrontation or a disagreement in the dorm, this is how we deal with it. Like, we have to provide support through these transitions. Uh, and, and another way is is being mindful of the words that we choose and and you know, understanding what a microaggression is. And, and you know, I never thought about those things. I never understood the, the definitions of those terms. And, 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 you know, I've had a guy tell me, hey, you know, words matter. And if you choose the wrong words, that has an effect. And we need more coaches, uh, no matter who they're dealing with, to do a better job of thinking about what they want to say and choosing their words wisely. And those are just a couple of examples that, you know, we, we, we talk about in the book. I know kind of going back to the beginning of this, maybe something we skipped over for you. It was, it was early in, in your talk. You um, talked about self-determination, right? And I think understanding uh, what, we're trying to encourage in our, our student athletes what they need to develop into. Um, that's a big part of it. And that's, I mean, obviously true at uh, those younger levels, but even into uh, college and, and beyond that, right? S still developing um, where they want to be, where they want to go. And, you know, football, of course, being an incredible vehicle to, to help with that and an example for them to um, be able to get some of those things out of it. Could you talk to us about, those some of those things you learned about self-determination yeah i mean ultimately as parents as teachers as coaches if we can help guide young people that we work with towards self-determination where they feel in complete control and they are self-motivated and intrinsically motivated if, if if we can help bring them to that point then that's really special i mean that's the point of why we do what we do 
self-determination is a, is a is a is a theory that was developed by two psychologists and and in the book I reference them unfortunately off the top of my head I, I should be better but but I can't recall their names but the theory is that that we reach a point where um we are really um self-motivated and 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 intrinsically motivated and in order to reach that a young any person in order to reach self-determination needs competency they need to know that they know that they they have the tools to achieve what they're trying to achieve they need autonomy knowing that hey i i'm in charge of my own journey here i'm going to set my own goals and then they need relatedness and that's what i focused on right the relationship part of it that in order for a young person to reach self-determination, they need to feel a part of something greater than themselves. They need to know that there is connection with other people around them. And that's kind of, as coaches, you know, that, that, that car, right, the competency, the autonomy, the relatedness, we want to help them drive that car. Uh, but, but in the book, I focused on the, the topic of relatedness because that was the one part that that spoke to me you know when we look at all this we on here we talk to coaches all the time successful ones and they all point out um the the importance of relationships and you know, really it's it's not just our profession i think our profession um you know it, those things are a lot clearer because of some of the the physical aspects of what we're asking our players to do and how they perform and and of course, whether that's underneath the Friday night lights or uh, the Saturday afternoons or Sundays, you know, it's it's on display, right? You, your work is on display for others to see, really like no other profession. And um, when you look at this, though, the two things you you say relationships are the reward, uh, but also relationships lead to winning. For you, what's the connectedness between those two things? Because I I agree. I, I don't think. You look at one without the other. I don't think you get to winning without having some of those relationships. I mean, you might get all the right people in place, but ultimately, you know, if you're going to win on the biggest stage, uh, it's because there's a bond that's developed there. Well, I think the first thing I'll tell young coaches when they say, that, look, there are some guys that get into the profession because they want to be called coach. There are some guys, that, some people that get into the profession because they think they can get rich. And, and look, I mean, we're in NFL hiring season right now. Guys are signing contracts for tens of millions of dollars. The, the highest levels of the profession, you can earn a great living. And certainly I earn a great living. Um, there are some guys that just want to show off bowl watches and, and conference championship rings. But in the end, those are not the true rewards of the profession. The true reward of the profession is my relationship with somebody like Kyle McCarthy, who I recruited from Youngstown, Ohio, was the last player we signed in our first class here in 2005 at Notre Dame with Charlie Weiss. And now I've watched Kyle have a great playing career. I had a cup of coffee in the National Football League. He now works uh, as a representative in the sports industry and, and, and works with me. And and so that relationship, that friendship, that love I have for Kyle and his family and this journey that we've been on together for for over 15 years, 
that's the reward for what we do. It's it's not the paycheck. It's not um, any recognition that you might get on Twitter or 24-7 because all that stuff is fleeting. It comes and goes. There's a flavor of the month, uh, you know, in, in every recruiting cycle. But my relationship with Kyle and his now beautiful wife and their family and getting to be a part of his life and his journey, that is the best part of what we do. Now, how does that relate to winning? When you choose to invest in your people that way, you're going to end up with when we stop chasing paychecks and we stop chasing mentions on social media and public recognition and we pour our energy into the relationships that we build with the young people we're honored to work with, with whom we work, I should say, my father would kill me if I ended the sentence in a preposition, um, when we invest in those relationships, winning is the byproduct. I truly believe that, 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 that when you have a relation, relationship-driven program, that it will uh, achieve at levels beyond its talent. And, and, you know, that has been a shift in my thinking over the last four or five years, but it's something that, that, you know, I truly, in my heart, believe it. I know you talk about the building blocks of relationships and, uh, you know, briefly, if you would, you know, I, I do want people to go out and, and get this book because I think it's an incredible resource. But, uh, you know, the, the building blocks of relationships, you boil it down to four. What are those? Well, it's, it's, it's trust, it's time, it's respect, and, and it's love. And we just kind of explore those things, but it starts with time. You know, um, you know, the single best gift we can give another person is our time. And if we are going to invest in our student athletes and their futures and building relationships, then we need to make that important and we need to give of our time. And, and there are so many different ways that we can do that. Um, you know, in terms of, of trust, you know, my wife likes to say trust is, is built in drops, but can be lost in buckets quickly, but it takes time to build trust. And again, we have to be honest and that's not always easy. Coaches don't think about that. Um, you know, it's not easy to tell somebody, Hey, in the end, you may not be good enough to, to start here. Um, or, Hey, here are the places that you fall short and it's not easy to tell somebody that, but, you know, we see it all the time. Like I, I referenced hard knocks, you know, the great series on HBO where they go inside training camp with an NFL club, but how many times do they show a head coach releasing a player? And he says, Hey man, I, I really believe you're good enough to play in this league. Just, it doesn't fit here. Um, you know, there are times that that statement's true, but there are a lot of times that it's not. But it's just easier to tell a guy, hey, you know, you're good enough. It just didn't work out here, as opposed to, hey, out of respect to you, uh, I'm going to tell you the truth here. And, and, and the truth is you're probably not good enough to play in this league and ought to start thinking about what your life is going to look like after football. That's a hard conversation to have. But if guys are going to trust us, they got to know that we're going to tell them the truth. Uh, they got to know that we're going to be, you know, at our best during critical moments. Uh, in order for, 
for our players to trust us. They got to know that we're going to be accountable. I referenced a, a time when Andy Reid got up and began a press conference by saying, hey, listen, I didn't do my job today. I did not have our team ready to play. And when the when his players see him open a press conference that way publicly, they, they're, they're going to develop trust in him because they know he's going to hold himself accountable. Um, you know, I talk about love, and, and I think love is a really um, – important thing that that needs to be addressed there's this thought that love is an emotional state of being right i'm in love with my wife it's love is that that's one description but love's you know it does not have to have a, a romantic connotation um and you know the way i look at love especially as it relates to player coach relationship is that if I dedicate myself to serving our players, I'm exhibiting my love for them, that, that I'm showing them, hey, I'm here to serve you. How can I make you better? Even if it's taking a five-star player and turning it into a draft pick and being a part of his development or, or taking the last player on the roster and finding, helping that person find some role to help our team win, if if I'm make if I'm serving these student athletes, I'm showing them that I love them. And I think when we can do that as coaches and then develop a culture within our program where they serve one another and the team loves one another, I think you can really help them develop beyond what they think is possible. I know you mentioned uh, time as being a, a big part of this and, you outlined some ways to build relationships, and uh, I did catch this portion of, of yours the other day, and, and it made me think of some things. It made me think back in my career um, as a as a young head coach at the high school level. Um, I realized, you know, the the coaching staff I was on, and I was an assistant before it, that we were missing out on a lot of opportunity to, you know, time where we could be building relationships, and we had to walk uh, not too far. I don't know. Uh, four or 500 feet to our, our practice field. So it was a little bit of a walk. Um, there were these golf carts there and, you know, it used to be to bring equipment over, but I found more and more of the coaches would just ride the golf cart over and the players would walk, you know, so there's, there's that five minutes there. There's that, that five minutes back, you know, before and after practice and coaches not taking advantage of that opportunity. And we had this, you know, at this high school, beautiful field house. And, you know, I, I really kept emphasizing to them, like, guys, you know, don't come back and, and sit in the office here and, you know, start watching film right away of our players in the building. Let's get out there. Let's talk to them, you know, sit in the team room and talk to them as they come through or sit out, you know, on the on the short wall by the the entrance and, you know, engage guys there. But, like, let's not come back in here till this building is empty. This is part of what we need to do. And, you know, <laughs> I remember getting frustrated with it. And at one point I told one of our equipment managers, like, hey, uh, managers only ride these back. And, and when you get back to the office today, go put all of the chairs in the coach's office in the equipment room and lock the door for me. <laughs> to make my point, right, probably wasn't yeah. on the coach relationship side, maybe not the best thing to do there because I know <laughs> I made some people angry. But, I mean, that, that point that, you know, we have all these little times that maybe we take for granted that, it's the little things here and there that start to build those relationships, the little interactions. When you step outside of, you know, just the X's and O's and you can talk to somebody, uh, those are huge opportunities. And it's just like 
reps in practice, right? Those little moments build up over time and build a relationship. There's, there's no doubt. And we don't think about those opportunities. I mean, think about uh, any of us who coach know that, you know, there's a tendency during run and stretch, Hey, I'm going to sit in the back and twirl my whistle here and take a mental break. And then you, you watch the guys that are walking up and down the line and tapping the guy up or patting him on the, on the butt. And, and it, look, we don't have to be coaching ball at that point. I mean, I often the best guys aren't, it's just, you know, let's, Let's talk about the music that's playing. What's going on in life? How's school? Tell me about your family. Um, you know, I used to think that the locker room was a sacred space for the players, that the coaches really should not go in there. And, and I've really changed my thinking on that. I mean, uh, I will go down into our locker room here at Notre Dame 20 minutes uh, before my meeting on, on a weekday and just hang out and be around the guys and just sit and listen and laugh and and you learn so much about who's got a great sense of humor and who you know who's got influence in the locker room that you never thought did and and you know you listen to them talk about the trials and and tribulations of being a college student and it's fun and and it's it makes me laugh and it helps me get to know them better and i know that they appreciate when guys are in there um and and there's a time and and a uh a place to give them their space, but there's also uh, connections that can be made by being with them. And, and I've really changed my thinking on a lot of, of those opportunities. Yeah, definitely. I think you, you point out a big one there and I always, I, it's a pet peeve of mine, you know, and I'll watch, I'll watch uh, practices. I'll watch, you know, teams warm up in games and seeing, seeing the coaches throw the ball around and interacting with each other just drives me crazy. That's a, a great time, you know, during stretch and, and warm up to be working with them. And for me, you know, I was at uh, Baldwin Wallace, your crosstown rival in, in college as the offensive coordinator. And, you know, I, I would go at that time, I, you know, I, I was very intentional about the relationships on the offensive side of the ball and everybody in our room. But, you know, I'd use that time to go across we'd kind of stretch on opposite sides of the field and I'd, I'd be talking to the defensive players there, right? I wanted to make sure, you know, we're, we're all in this together. And, it, and I'd tell my assistant coaches uh, on offense, like the same thing, like for you guys, you know, some of you never get out of, of your room, go, go over and talk to the offensive lineman during stretch, right? Like just an incredible time to, um, again, build those relationships and, what, what's that five or 10 minutes a day, those two periods a day over the course of the season, pretty much adds adds up to a lot of hours right no there's no doubt and those are those are touches and those are opportunities that that we can't waste because they they do pay dividends and for me specifically as a special teams coordinator who deals with so much of the roster um you know any you know i want to develop relationships all across uh the team you know and and you know, to get to know the offensive linemen or the quarterbacks who I may not deal with a ton in my meeting room, you know, that it just, those are culture builders. Those are chances to, to keep um, reaffirming the head coach's message to the team, keep delivering it, keep getting to know guys. And, and really what, what you find is that when I look back um, on experiences at schools and programs, I yeah, we're always going to remember the moments on the field, but it's the stuff that nobody sees. 
it's the it's the the you know going in the locker room down here and we have a nerf hoop in there and hitting a 20 foot shot and walking away and having the players laugh and and you know it's 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 the Chris Fink white writing the question of the board up on the whiteboard you know do you call it stuffing or do you call it dressing and how that opens conversations and kidding and just that's the stuff that you miss and remember and and I remember my dad talking about what he misses most since his retirement and it's not it, you know it's not Sundays it's it's riding the bus with the coaches and the players and it's the you know I I say all the time you know it's been 20 years since there's been a Thanksgiving that I didn't go to practice like that's part of my Thanksgiving is spending that morning with a football team and and um you know those are the things that that I value the most and will miss the most a, a big portion of of relationships are understanding how to give and receive feedback it's a big part of our profession we need to be giving feedback constantly um and and you share a portion uh, of that can you i guess give us uh, some of the best tips of of giving feedback. Yes. Giving feedback is a skill and it is something that can be practiced and it's so vitally important. First of all, it's, it's the number one tool we have in teaching because um, we can give it immediately. We can give it, uh, it doesn't cost us anything. Um, it's, it's available in endless amounts. So it's so important that we develop the skill as teachers to, to giving feedback. I also think it's important. Um, I think it's important as, as coaches and teachers were able to receive feedback. Um, you know, it, it makes us more valuable as assistants when head coaches know that they can give us feedback and we'll receive it and act on it. Uh, I, I think it's a sign of humility um, when when we're open to receiving feedback, like everybody everybody can get better. Um, so I think that dynamic just in the learning process is really important. You know, there are some great tips about giving feedback. First of all, there's a time and a place. Um, and if it's something serious, I, I just kind of take the, the Marv Levy approach that uh, I'm never trying to embarrass somebody in front of their peers. So if it's something that I feel like is going to embarrass a guy, I'm going to do it in private. Um, you know, now that's not to say we can't make a correction on the field and you get a guy going, but but ultimately, um, you know, we're not in the, the business of, of trying to embarrass guys. Um, I, I think not enough people plan out how they're going to give feedback. They don't think about what they're going to say. Um, I know for a fact some guys – a miss the teachable moment. You know, you can't correct something a week later and expect that it's going to have the same impact as at that moment. Okay, I've just watched this guy make a mistake, either on film or in person on the field. Uh, if I if I'm going to be an effective teacher, I can't miss that teachable moment. Like, hey, stop. We need to address this right now. Um, you know, I think it's really important, especially this day and age, it can never be personal. I think back to Bruce Arians on one of those hard knocks deals where, where he gets up in front of the Arizona Cardinals and says, hey, listen, you know, we're going to correct your football here, but we're not attacking you as a, as a person. If your football's not good enough, I'm going to tell you that. Um, 
You know, there, there, it's really important that we give specific feedback. Hey, you're not playing tough enough. That's not specific. Hey, when you take on this block, you are not engaging, you're not punching, you're not disengaging. It is not physical block destruction. And here is how we are going to fix that. Not only are we specific about what needs to be corrected, we're going to give an action plan as well. And then lastly, and I think most importantly, and this is a mistake, we can never speak for other people. Um, we, we, we can't, hey, you know, the coaches don't think you care about football. Like that is such a uh, almost cowardly statement. Like, hey, I'm speaking for myself. This is what I observe and I'm going to own it. I'm not going to speak for somebody else. And I think when we're dealing with young people, too, something that I would always do as a head coach, if it was going to be a difficult conversation, or for that matter now as a coordinator, if it was going to be a difficult conversation, I wanted a third person in the room so that there was never a, hey, this is what I said, this is what I heard. And the other thing was, all right, now repeat back to me what you heard me say. What is it that you heard me say? So I could hear that person reframe to make sure that something wasn't getting lost in the translation. Coach, I know a big part of this is is translating all of this to coaching Generation Z. You, know, you and I were coached, you know, similar age, if not the same age, coached a similar way. I'm sure at some point had some coach on grabbing on our face mask or in our face, and you know, a, a lot different now than it was then. So. Um, there's a lot of things we have to approach a little bit differently. What are the keys to coaching this generation? Well, I think for one thing, Generation Z wants interpersonal interaction. Like they want one-on-one um, -on -one conversations. They want uh, as much one-on-one -on -one, um, interpersonal relationship as they can get. Now, that doesn't always mean it, 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 we're sitting across from each other. And, you know, this, this group will uh, uh, have a very serious conversation with you via text and not think twice about it. Like to them, that's not unusual at all. Um, I, I think that, you know, they expect us to listen. They, you know, their parents have been hanging on their every word. If we blow them off and ignore them, they know it, and they'll make it really hard uh, for us to, to build connections if they don't feel like they're being listened to. Um, they want a specific type of learning environment. I mean, they want structure in the classroom, in the meeting room, on the field. Uh, they have a shorter attention span, so we need to be efficient as teachers. We need to keep it exciting. We need to be different. It can't be the same thing over and over again. Um, they want customized teaching. I mean, you know, we all grew up with that coach that was on Tuesday, this is what we do during individual. On Wednesday, this is what we do. Like, that's not going to work with Generation Z. They, they, they want to know, all right, this is where I'm struggling, and this is how coach is going to help me get better. Um, they're about technology, uh, and this is an area that I've had to improve. Like, how can I change up my presentations how can I get uh, more well-versed in technology uh, to, to help keep their attention? Um, and, and, and frankly, um, they just want to have fun. I mean, 
I used the term I stole it and and in the book I certainly reference who we lifted it from but edutainment like to think that we can just get up there and lecture right and just install and you know we've got to find ways to keep it light we've got to find ways to change it up um you know I I talked to one doctor who 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 talked about students who have ADHD or ADD, you know, these challenges to keep their attention, um, talked about at one point keeping music on in the background. So there are times in meetings where when the installation is done and now we shift to film review and watching tape, that we'll put music on in the meeting rooms because in the end, that noise helps the brain of an ADD student. And look, not everybody we're dealing with faces those challenges. They just like listening to the music, but there are others in the room that that helps their learning process. And it would have been um, it, it would have been unthinkable that my father would have ever put music on in in a meeting room, or for that matter, the fact that I will let guys get up and walk around, or they can have a squish ball in their hands or a fidget spinner, like. It's not their job to adjust to me. It's my job to adjust to them. And how can I create a learning environment in this meeting, on this practice field, that helps these guys learn to the best of their ability? That's my job. And, and, and you know, we have to be open to different ideas with this generation. Coach, in, in looking at all you've done here, the self-reflection, the process of, of writing, which I, mean, I write a ton. It helps me really solidify my thinking. Uh, how did you come out on the other side of this different as a coach? Uh, hopefully better. That is, that is my hope. Hopefully more prepared for when uh, I get the opportunity to be a head coach again. Um, certainly more keenly aware of, of the people around me and um, uh, more able to look at things and say, I can do this better and I'm going to do this better. And uh, I also think it'll make me a better recruiter as long as I'm in college football. Um, I'm excited about the, the things that I've learned and the changes that I've made in my own approach. And I also believe that, um, they have made us more productive on the field here at Notre Dame. I've seen it. I've seen the buy-in from our team in terms of just what we're doing in special teams. I've seen the buy-in get better because I've gone out of my way to build better relationships with the people that we're working with. And I'm excited about, uh, I'm hopeful and I pray that I'll get another chance to be a head coach. And I'm excited to put this th this approach into action and and see how it helps us improve as a football team and and, and frankly it's it kind of re-energized me in, in terms of, of of what we do coach for our listeners out there what's the best way to connect with you uh i'm i can be found on twitter and instagram and both handles are at brian polian uh p-o-l-i-a-n which i know is a really creative I had the people around here say, wow, that was really creative. But um, fortunately, there are not a lot of Brian Polians out there. So the, people usually find me. Um, they can find the book on Amazon. 
it says out of stock, but the reality of it is you order it, they'll send it to you. Uh, and also on the publisher's website, coaches, coacheschoice.com. Um, I, I'm very active on the clinic circuit. I'll be speaking virtually on the New York State Coaches Association clinic here in early February. Um, and if anybody reaches out and, and would find any value in a conversation and email exchange, uh, I'm excited to help because I remember all the coaches that helped me when, when I was trying to improve and, and get better. Yeah, well, Coach, we thank you for um, what you're doing on the clinic circuit. That's another one we'll be running at coachesclinic.com, the New York State Coaches Association Clinic, and uh, I'll include a link to that in our show notes. They've put together an incredible lineup as well. Uh, your course uh, or clinic that you did will be a, a course on CoachTube to continue to support Lauren's first and goal. Um, that uh, link can be found uh, in our show notes or at coachandcoordinator.com. And I highly recommend, you know, for all the, the clinics that are out there right now, all you can do uh, professionally to develop your understanding of this game, the techniques, the schemes, the X's and O's, don't forget this part of it. Because uh, at the heart of everything we do is is people. And Coach, uh, what you've put together here, I think, is uh, is definitely needed. And I think will help coaches along the way. So thank you for doing that. Thank you so much for allowing me to come here and, and, and talk about this stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or Spotify and click five-star for a rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast. Check out our new home for the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. That's at coachandcoordinator.com. And follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski.